The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Uh, We're going to continue this morning our study of 1 Thessalonians, and we're in chapter 5, which deals with the day of the Lord. We've been looking at this for a couple weeks now. 1 Thessalonians 5.2 says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, I'm hoping by now you have some handle on what this day of the Lord means, okay? This is an expression taken from the Tanakh, which is used when God uses an army of a foreign nation to judge another nation. He brings, stirs up an army to bring them in against the nation that he wants to judge, and it's called the day of the Lord. Now, there's a lot of references in the Tanakh to the day of the Lord when God's using different nations to judge other nations. But in the New Testament, all references to the day of the Lord refer to the judgment that God brought against Israel by the Romans in AD 70. It's a historical event. You can look it up in history. There's plenty of stuff written about it. Now, Paul tells the Thessalonians that in regard to the day of the Lord, you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Now, darkness is a symbol of both spiritual blindness and lack of knowledge. The you here is believers, but you are not in darkness. And believers at Thessalonica, they're not in spiritual darkness. They know the Lord, first of all. And not only that, they understand Yahweh's plan of eschatology. Paul had taught them all about eschatology in the three weeks he was there with them. They were well informed. And he says that you're not in darkness, that that day is not going to surprise you. In verse 5 he says, For you're all children of the light and children of the day. We're not of the night. Or of the darkness. Now, starting at this point and going through to verse 10, Paul couches his teaching and his exhortation in the first person plural, moving from talking about what they, the unbelievers, do to what we, Christians, do. In contrast to those who will be overtaken by the day of the Lord when it happens, the Thessalonian believers are sons of light and sons of the day. Now, Let me say a few things here about audience relevance. We talk about this a lot. It's a subject that's very important to your study of Scriptures. If you don't understand this hermeneutical principle, you're going to be off in a lot of your Bible study. All right? Hermeneutics, the science of biblical interpretation. Audience relevance requires that the interpreter ascertain the meaning of the words of the Scripture by what they meant to the original intended audience. The Bible was written to specific people at a specific time. So let me ask you this. Who is the audience of verse 5? It's not a trick question. Huh? Okay, all believers? All right, he, he is talking here. He says, for you are children of the light, your children of the day. He's talking to the first century believers that lived in Thessalonica at that time. All right? So let me ask you another question. Is this teaching specific only to the first century Thessalonians? 
Are we all called to be children of light, children of the day, by virtue of our faith in Christ? Absolutely. So this is not, it's written to them, but this written to them as the saints of God, and we're saints of God, and so this also is applicable to us. All right? This is for all saints in every age. Now, that's not the case with the next verse. Okay? Because the next verse calls them to be awake and be sober. For you, he says, then let us not sleep. Us is Paul and the Thessalonians. As others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Now, I said this is not to us. God wants us awake spiritually. He wants us sober spiritually. But this is specifically directing their attention to the day of the Lord. That's what the context is. That's what the subject is. So let us is directed to the first century audience. They're to be watching for the day of the Lord. And this doesn't apply to us because it's time sensitive. The context of being alert, as I said, is for the day of the Lord. The event that they were to watch for happened in AD 70. So it's kind of foolish for us to be watching and be alert for this event. Although most of the church thinks it is, they're supposed to be watching for that event. Okay? <coughs> G.K. Beale writes this, Paul underscores in 5, 2 through 10 that Christ's final coming will happen unexpectedly and that Christians, nevertheless, should live in such a way that they will not be surprised by it. Though we cannot narrow Christ's return to any particular date, we should expect Him to come at any time. Now, he's talking to a contemporary audience, so the we is us. We should expect it at any time. Now, I like what he says here. We cannot narrow Christ's return to any particular date. Well, I think according to the New Testament, we could narrow His return. Because the Lord said it would happen while some of the disciples He was talking to were still alive. So that narrows it to the lifetime of those disciples, correct? Matthew 16, 28. He also said in Matthew 24, 34, this generation, biblically a generation is 40 years, so within 40 years, so that's kind of narrow. We can narrow it down. It's a lot more narrow than the 2,000 most people are looking at, right? The New Testament also said it would happen soon, shortly, quickly. It was near. The judge is standing at the door. I think it narrows it down. Now, since they are children of light and children of the day, they should not sleep but be alert and self-controlled. He says, I want you watching for this. It's going to come in your generation. Now, the translation here, others, reflects the Greek lope, which also occurs in 4.13, where Paul referred to others who have no hope. In both cases, the term refers to unbelievers. So he says, we don't want to sleep as others, as unbelievers, but let us keep awake and be sober. Now, the word sleep here, excuse me, is the Greek word kathudo. This is a different word than he used for sleep in 4.13. 4.13, he says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Now, the word sleep there is kemao. Totally different word, and this is referring to those who have died. That's what he's talking about. Now, this kemao is used in Scripture of people who sleep, 
just sleeping, and it's used of death. So sleep is the metaphor for those who have died. So that's what he's talking about. They were concerned about their dead loved ones. Were they going to miss out? He says, no, don't worry. They're not going to miss out. So kathyudo is often used in the New Testament for moral indifference or spiritual insensitivity. It's a synonym for spiritual lethargy or carnality. And it's in contrast with not physically being alive, but with being spiritually awake and in tune to the Lord. So kathyudo is used in this text in two different ways. It's used of moral indifference in verse 6, and it's used of physical rest in verse 7. In verse 7 he says, for those who sleep. And he's just talking about sleeping. <laughs> okay, Those who sleep, they sleep at night. That makes sense, right? <laughs> those who are drunk, they get drunk at night. Now, in Ephesians 5.14, the saints in Ephesus are enjoined to wake out of such a sleep so they would walk in the light of Christ in wisdom and not be foolish. He says in Ephesians 5.14, For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, who is Paul talking to here? To arise from dead. He's talking to believers in Thessalonica, all right? The context here, he's speaking to Christians. And you say, why does it say arise from the dead? Well, if you're familiar with Ephesians, back in 2, 1 through 5, he said, it is God who made us alive, right? So salvation is a work of God, but this is an imperative here, arise from the dead. And it's directed to the believer who is a co-partner of the unfaithful works of darkness. They're not walking in light. So he says, you need to wake up. You need to wake up and get in the light. What Paul is saying here is that there's some of the Ephesian Christians that are still sleeping. You're not walking in the light like you should. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Yahweh quickened you. In Christ, He has put you in heavenly places, but the tragedy is you're not walking in it. And He says, wake up. Wake up and live like you're supposed to. It is not the unbeliever that is challenged to wake up and rise from the dead. They can't do that. They're dead. Okay? They don't hear commands. It's the believer. And we can be lights only in a reflective way. Christ is the light, and we are to let Him shine through us by the things we say, the things we do. All right, so the saints in Ephesus are enjoined to wake out of such a sleep that they can walk in the light of Christ in wisdom and not be foolish. Now, in our text... Believers are enjoined not to enter it. He tells the Ephesians, wake up. He tells our believers in Thessalonica, don't fall asleep. So then let us not sleep as others do. Don't fall asleep. Be awake. Be sober. The word awake here is the Greek word gregorio, which literally means watchful. Sober is likewise a figurative term here and states the same idea, but under a different synonym than that of spiritual sobriety. The word brings out the need to be under the Spirit's control. He says, be sober. Pay attention to what's going on around you. Paul said this in Ephesians 5.18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, this is a command. It's in the imperative mode. The Christians in Asia Minor were commanded to be filled with the Spirit, which tells me this. 
not all Christians are filled with the Spirit. And I, this is one of those other verses, okay, is this time sensitive? Was this something that they should be filled with the Spirit because of a certain? No. No, this is to the church. These are, this is to saints. So this is a command that we can take to ourselves that we're not to be drunk with wine, that's debauchery, but we're to be filled with the Spirit. It's not an option. And the reason it's commanded is because all believers don't do this. It's a verb that's in the present tense, and so it literally means keep on being filled with the Spirit. It's not a once-for-all experience. You know, like, I got the Spirit, now I'm good. No. And the verb is passive here, which means that you don't fill yourself. It's something that's done to you. You can put yourself in a position to be filled, but it must be the sovereign God who does the filling. Now, I wish they wouldn't use the word filled here because I think that's confusing. The Greek here is plerao. And I think the best way to translate plerao is to be controlled by. Have you ever seen someone controlled by alcohol? <laughs> Have you? Okay. He said, don't do that. Okay. You should be controlled by the Spirit. That's the idea here. So both being awake and soberness are a contrast with the stupefied condition of drunkenness in which people are unable to exercise their faculties right and they cause harm to themselves. Now the present active subjunctives here, keep awake and be sober, emphasize continual diligence. And that's what he's calling them to. Listen, people, you've got to be awake. You've got to be paying attention so you see this when it shows up. Now, this idea of alertness is a common theme of the New Testament for Christians concerning the second coming, which, again, makes it time-sensitive. Now, the Lord gave a parable on this theme in Matthew 25, so let's look at that for a second. In Matthew 25, we have the parable of the ten virgins. Now, it says, The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here's the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Now, he says here, the kingdom of heaven will be like. This is a future tense, it's looking ahead to the end of of the age. The kingdom of heaven, he says, will be like ten virgins. Well, this means that when the Son of Man returns in judgment on the day of the Lord, it will be as it was in the case of the ten virgins in a marriage ceremony. Now, we read this and we're like, we don't have a clue what, because this is an Eastern wedding. We don't get this, okay? We don't understand it. So you have to look into the whole idea so it little, makes a little more sense to you. But it deals with the onset and the consummated kingdom. The Lord is still dealing with the disciples' question that brought about in Matthew 24, 1 and 2, about the destruction of the temple, about His return, about the end of the age. That's still the subject here. And we can put it this way. At the end of the Jewish age, and the consummation of the kingdom of God will be like the coming of a bridegroom to a waiting bridal party. So Yeshua makes a distinction here between the wise and the foolish. 
at the beginning of his teaching in Matthew by an allegory of two builders. Remember, he, in Matthew 7, he talks about the wise builder and the foolish builder. Well, now he's still using that idea of wise and foolish. One built his house on a rock. He was obedient, followed obedience. The other didn't. He was foolish. The two adjectives used here to describe these women are the same ones he used to describe those builders on the rock and on the sand in chapter 7. The term for foolish here is moros. <laughs> Guess which word we get from that? Guess. Go ahead. Moron. Okay, you ever heard of somebody? You're a moron. All right? It means you're foolish. All right? You're foolish. The contrast here is between wise and foolish, and that's a frequent contrast in the wisdom literature of the Tanakh, especially in Proverbs. Compares the fool to the wise. Great stuff in Proverbs there. Now, the job of these ten girls was to go out and meet the bridegroom when he arrived and escort him back in. It was an important job, and if they did it well, their reward would be to join the wedding feast. All right, so here we have ten virgins waiting to join the wedding party. They're waiting expectantly for the bridegroom. Is the number ten significant? Well, seven among the Jews denoted perfection. Ten is a number that made a thing complete. All right, a company was considered complete if there were ten present. Now, who are the virgins in this story? Well, in the flow and the purpose of the parable, the virgins who are expecting the bridegroom would be the first century church. Now, the first century part there is really important. It's not us. We're not expecting the bridegroom. Okay, we're not waiting for him. You know, he hasn't gone away for thousands of years. All right? So there in the first century, that church is waiting, all right? And the central message of this parable is preparedness. That's the essential thing he's trying to stress. It's essential for the time is coming when getting ready, he says, not going to be any longer possible. The door's going to be shut. So the overriding theme is preparedness for the coming of the Son of Man. And it should be clear that this parable is an amplification of one word which the Lord gave to His disciples when he outlined the course of events, he said to them, Therefore stay awake, for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. The word awake here is the Greek word Gregorio. It's the same word that Paul uses in our text in Thessalonians. It's the same word our Lord uses in the parable of the ten virgins. Okay, Stay awake. That's the theme here. The Lord's coming. You don't know when, so stay awake. Now, as in the parable of the householder, which was waiting for his absent Lord, this parable is obviously intended to describe those who live between the Lord's ascension and His second coming, which includes the Thessalonians, right? Our Lord knew at this time that He was going away. He knew that there'd be an intervening period of time before His return, and He's describing by means of these parables what it means by the command to stay awake. The parable stresses the need for preparedness in the face of an unexpected delay. Now get that unexpected. They didn't know there was, how long a delay there was going to be. The king went to receive his kingdom and returned. How long was he gone? They didn't know how long this was going to be. Now in the story of the ten virgins waiting for the bridegroom's coming, certain clues are given to us that reveal the Lord's meaning. Notice the first of them, that there is a division among these ten, okay? 
They fall into two groups. Five were wise, five were foolish. So the first question is, that immediately confronts us, what makes a difference? In what way are five wise and the other foolish? You can see immediately that there were certain very familiar things to both of them, all right? They all intended to meet the bridegroom. And it meant to escort him back to the place where the festivities were going to be held. They all had lamps. So that's not the ground of division. They also had oil when they started, right? So it's not that. Furthermore, they're all expecting the bridegroom's coming. They all had a sense of expectation. And when he was delayed, they all went to sleep. And each of these three parables that the Lord gives here, he clearly indicates that there's going to be what seemed to be to them a long delay before his return. Now, you can understand that, right? Forty years is a long time. Okay? But it's 2,000 years is way long. Okay? All right? But when you're expecting something, and I mean, they, they probably like were us. Listen, I've been expecting Trump to return for two years. And I'm thinking it's going to be soon. It's going to be soon. It's, gonna, it's been two years I'm waiting. I don't think I'm going to wait much longer. Meaning I'm not going to have to wait much longer because I think he'll be back by the end of the year. But that's my opinion. Don't laugh. You wait. You will see. All you naysayers are going to say, wow, how about that? He was right. Trump's back. Okay. But if two years is a long time, can you imagine 40? I can't wait 40 years. I don't think I'll be here in 40 years. Okay. So I can't wait that long. So you can understand for them, they're thinking, hey, this is a pretty long delay. Matthew 24, 48 says, but if that wicked servant says to him, my master is delayed. Hey, what the heck? I'm tired of waiting for him. He's not coming. And then 25.19 says, but after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Now, our futurist friends try to turn this delay into thousands of years. Okay? But it should be clear to see that the master returns to the same servants that he left. Okay? And the different parables, Jeff did the parable of the talents, you know, the minas, and they came back to the same people. Okay? The ones he left. The bridegroom here returns to the same virgins that he left. Listen, the virgins took a nap. They didn't sleep for 2,000 years. Okay? The virgins get drowsy at dusk, and the bridegroom returns at midnight. Now, 25 verse 6 says, But at midnight there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come and meet him. Now, the same word here for cry and meet are used by Paul in 1 Thessalonians in describing the coming of Christ, which he also said would be like a thief in the night. So they have to be ready. But now, according to the story, the cry comes at midnight. Behold, the bridegroom comes. Come to meet him. That, come out and meet him. That immediately plunges us into the rest of the story that says, Then all those virgins arose. They trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, you go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you do not know neither the day nor the hour. 
Now, the crucial difference between the wise and the foolish lay in the fact that the wise had extra oil. They all had oil to begin with, but the wise took some extra oil along with them. That's what made it possible for them to endure the unexpected delay of the bridegroom. So what does the oil symbolize? Who cares? Here's what you got to understand. We've talked about this many times. What is the one central rule of parabolic interpretation? You're trying to seek the one message the parable teaches. Many people said, don't make a parable walk on all fours. In other words, don't try to make everything in the parable mean something. The parable is teaching a central truth. It doesn't matter what the oil is, okay? That's not a big deal. But many try to make a big deal. They say, well, the oil divides them, so, you know, it's got to be something similar about the oil. And the majority of commentators take the oil to mean the Holy Spirit. So they ran out of the Holy Spirit. Doggone, should have brought some extra. <laughs> they both had oil to begin with, right? The foolish virgins ran out. How could oil refer to the Holy Spirit? We don't run out. We don't need to take extra things along with us so we make sure we have enough. The theme of this parable turns on the bridegroom's delay. The foolish virgins did not, not forget to bring oil. The delay in the bridegroom's show they just didn't bring enough. So the oil can't be forced to mean good works or the Holy Spirit. It's merely an element in the story showing that the foolish virgins were not prepared for the delay and therefore that's the issue. Preparedness. That distinguishes the wise from the foolish. The wise were prepared to last through a delay. The foolish ones thought, he'll be back real soon, we don't need to prepare. So the five foolish virgins probably expected that the bridegroom would come very soon, and therefore they just didn't make provision. The wise virgins knew that the time of his coming was uncertain, so they just prepared for delay. That's just smart, people. That's why they're called wise, okay? You don't know how long the life's going to be. Let's just be prepared. He said, therefore, also, must be, you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. When the bridegroom came, only those who were ready went in. Now, the word ready here is hetoimas, and it means ready, prepared. The foolish virgins were not ready. They were unprepared, so they didn't get in. And in Matthew 25, 13, he says, Watch, therefore, you don't know the day or the hour. The Greek word for watch here, again, is gregorio, and it means to keep awake, to watch, to be vigilant. It's the same word used in our text in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. Awake. Stay awake. Watch. See, to not watch would cost the first century saints dearly. In this parable that the Lord uses, He's telling it, it would cost them their lives. The saints in Jerusalem. They needed to be prepared to flee Jerusalem when they saw the armies coming. They needed to be ready. This is the scope or design of the whole parable. We also see this idea again that they don't know the day or the hour coming and therefore they always have to be watching. Like the coming of the bridegroom, his advent would be sudden and costly for those who are not prepared. So Paul tells them, keep awake. And he says this, for those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. This is just an illustration of the principle from the natural world People generally, generally sleep at night, 
Drunks usually get drunk at night, okay? That's not a fast, hard rule. We know people who sleep during the day. We know people who get drunk during the day. But generally, this is what it is. And that's what he's saying. So don't do that because you're not of the night. Now, the Bible has many cases of people who were overcome and died because they were sleeping and not watching, okay? Believers and unbelievers. Remember Sisera? What happened to him? Took a nap? A dirt nap, right? But J.L., okay, L means God, okay, J.L., so this, uh, this is not a good tent to go into, Sisera, you know, because this is a woman of God, she's going to take care of you. The wife of Heber took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, and she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So she gives him some milk. Here, take a little nap, buddy. I mean, that's serious. Can you imagine driving a tent peg all the way through somebody's head into the ground? How about, El- you know, somebody else that was sleeping and got in trouble for sleeping when he shouldn't have been? How about Samson? Samson, right? She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head, and she began to torment him, and his strength had left him. That's a sad story. Well, the virgins in Yeshua's parable on his second coming, they all fell asleep while waiting for the bridegroom. But some of them were ready. When they heard the cry, they awoke, and they had their lamps, so they were ready to go. So Paul tells the Thessalonians, So then let us not sleep as others, but let us keep awake and be sober. And then in verse 8 he says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, the contrast between Christians and unbelievers it is introduced by the adversative here, de, which is translated but here, and the emphatic we, which is hemes. All right, he's saying, but we, we're, there's a contrast here. And he uses the imagery of a soldier's armor to illustrate the idea of watchfulness. You know, I think a soldier is a good example of someone who better watch and better be sober. Okay, they're supposed to be out there and paying attention. He says, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. Now, this is an aorist middle participle, which should read, having once for all put on. And what's interesting here, this is not a command. He's not telling them to put on. He's saying it's already been put on. All right? It's already the existing armor that protects them. Now, the word in the Greek indicates not that believers make their own efforts to put on the armor, but that as sons of light, they've already been clothed with the armor. Once a person has trusted Christ, they've already put on the armor. So it's not things you have to scramble about. Where do I get this word? I think the armor, my opinion, is a graphic way of saying what Paul says in Romans 13, put on the Lord Yeshua the Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. In other words, Christ is our armor. We are to put him on. Well, put on here is from the Greek word enduo, and it means to put on clothes, to envelop in. It has the idea of a garment which is wrapped around somebody. And the Greek word is used literally this way in a number of places in the New Testament. Putting on a garment, wrapping it up. So enduo here is an aorist imperative middle. An aorist imperative calls for a specific 
definite, decisive choice. Do this now, at once, once for all. The middle voice indicates the subject performs an action upon itself or herself. So believers are called to once and for all put on Christ as a garment. Others have translated in duo to play the part of. So what Paul is saying here, play the part of Yeshua. Imitate Christ. Be like Christ. That's what he's saying. Become like Yeshua. Act like Him. Now the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, he says, the hope of salvation. Again, this military metaphor, Paul uses it often. Because the picture of a soldier is one who, once he clothes himself with the armor, he's ready to go. He's paying attention. He's watching. He wants to avoid harm. He wants to be ready when the enemy comes upon him. Now, Paul talks about faith, love, and hope. This triad is a favorite of Christian virtues for Paul. This is usually expressed faith, hope, and love. But Paul here, and in 1.3, he uses it, and he puts hope last. And I think the reason for that is Paul is stressing the eschatological hope that is associated with Christ's second coming. That's the focus of these letters. So he says, faith, love, and hope. Now, I want you to focus on the helmet for a minute here. For a helmet, he says, the hope of salvation. Now, the salvation here, I think, includes all that we have in Christ, But in the context, it includes also, they had in mind, deliverance from the wrath of God on the day of the Lord. Now, why does he say hope of salvation? Well, Paul calls salvation a hope because the people he's writing to, they're living in the transition period. And their salvation has not yet been consummated. Here's the thing. Most people today think we're still in a transition period. They don't know it ended. And so they're in the, you know, so if this is true, if this wasn't just for them and it's for us, so we don't have salvation yet either. It's a hope. It's a hope. The 40-year transition period, we talked about this last week, it's also the Christ event, the second exodus. It's called the last days. That's the last days of the old covenant. The new covenant has no last days. It's the time when the Jewish temple was destroyed. The Bible calls this period this age. The the time period when the Bible says this age is referring to the Old Covenant period. It's the age they lived in, not this age that we're in, this age that they lived. The age to come is where we are, all right? Now, the 40-year period from Pentecost to Holocaust was a time of transition, going from the old to the new. In this transition period, the New Covenant had been inaugurated, but it wasn't consummated. Have you heard the expression, the already but not yet? Theologians use that all the time. The problem is, the already but not yet only applied to the 40-year period. It doesn't apply anymore. It was only for that period. And if they say it's for today, then they don't know what time it is. And during this transition period, they lived in hope of what they had been promised, but didn't get it yet. Notice what Paul says to the Ephesian saints. In Ephesians 1, 13-14, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, so they hear the gospel, they trust Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Is this to all saints? Or is this limited to the Thessalonians? I mean the Ephesians here. 
Well, it's not limited to the Ephesians. It's to all the first century saints. It's only to the transition saints because he says they had a guarantee of the inheritance until we acquire its possession. So they didn't have it, but they had a guarantee. And what was the guarantee? The guarantee was the Holy Spirit. The word guarantee is the Greek word erobone. And Strong says it's of Hebrew origin. It's a pledge. It's a part of a purchase money or property given in advance for security. It's what, you know, we would give somebody if we got engaged. We'd give them a ring. Okay? That's a guarantee. It doesn't really mean it's a guarantee today, but that's the, what was the purpose of it. It's a guarantee I want to marry you. All right? This, you'll give you this until we, until we marry. But it's a pledge. That's the, Holy, that's the whole thing. So, so they were given the Holy Spirit as a pledge, as a guarantee, until they got the inheritance. They had that until they acquire it. Notice what the transition saints hoped for. Galatians 5.5 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So were the first century saints not righteous? Did they not have righteousness? Already, but not yet. They had it, but it wasn't consummated yet. Okay? That's why they hoped for it. Titus 1.2 in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised. So they're hoping for this. Titus 3.7 So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So you, people, you don't hope for what you have. Okay? Unless you're foolish. Alright? Moron. Titus 2.13 Waiting for our blessed hope, which is the blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Christ. So the return of Christ was their blessed hope because all they hoped for would be fulfilled in His presence when He returned. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Yeshua the Christ. So set your hope on the grace that's coming at the Christ event. The transition period, the second exodus, this is a time of hope. They had hope that they were going to reach the fulfillment of what God had promised. People, they hope for what they didn't see. They hope for the completion of redemption. Look what Paul says in Romans 8.24. This is common sense. I know you know this. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. You get that? If you have something, do you hope for it? Well, you really shouldn't. He says, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it because we don't have it yet. You don't hope anymore. When I was out at sea... I had a middle rack on the ship, one below me, one above me. And so the bump, the bunk above me, at the bottom of it, I had pictures all over the place of Kathy and the girls. And I'd lay there at night dreaming about the day I'd be home. When I got home, I didn't have pictures up anymore. I didn't hope anymore. I had. It would be kind of stupid to be laying there looking at pictures of what I have. 
But here's the sad thing today. So much of the church is longing for what they already have. They just don't know they have it. I want it to be great when the Lord returns and we'll be, He'll dwell with us. Uh, yeah, He's doing that right now. Okay? That's the promise of the new covenant, that God would dwell with us. You don't hope for what you have. So the transition saints, they lived in hope. Hope of the second coming that would bring them in the fullness of their salvation. And he says in verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Yeshua the Christ. The wrath here being, you know, God's, the day of the Lord is going to pour wrath on the unbelievers. We'll see that when we get into 2 Thessalonians in the first chapter. He talks about God pouring out His wrath on these unbelievers. He's not destined us for wrath. Now the verb translated destined here is tithemi. And according to Bauer, Art, and Gingrich, lexicon, it means to destine or appoint someone to or for something. Milligan says it is used regularly for God's sovereign determination of events. It means to destine or appoint someone to or for something. Now, whatever the verb is used in this manner, the divine appointment is made so that God's purpose might be fulfilled. This is what we call the doctrine of predestination. All right? Many Christians lose their mind over this. They stumble over this. They just can't understand. How could this be? How can God predestine? Are we robots? Are we puppets? What? No. You make choices every day. Okay? You have a will. It's just not free. All right? You have volition. We choose. A comment by theologian Millard Eckerson is helpful. He writes this, Predestination refers to God's choice of individuals for either eternal life or eternal death. Election is the selection of some for eternal life, the positive side of predestination. Now, the first accusation you'll get on the subject of predestination is that God is not loving. That's unloving. And I'm like, so, okay, what are you saying about God? God is love. Is that his only attribute? He's just love. Only attribute he has. What are the other? I don't think anybody knows he has other attributes. Okay, they just focus on the love. They like that one. God is not loving. I mean, God is not unloving because of this. Listen, everybody ever born deserves wrath. There is none righteous. No, not one. That means no, not you. Okay, nobody. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So everybody deserves wrath. No one deserves to be in God's presence. So when people experience God's wrath, that's what we call justice, which is an attribute of God. God is just. Okay, He punishes sin. When we go to heaven, that's called grace, because we don't deserve it. Therefore, predestination shows the love of God as God chooses to make His enemies His friends by grace. And we see an analogy of this in John 5. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades, and these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. All these sick people laying around the pool, waiting for the waters to get stirred, because when the water got stirred, the first one in got healed. Okay? Well, if you're invalid and you're laying there paralyzed, how do you get in? You know, I don't, you're not going to make it, okay? 
But then it says this, but Yeshua, so Yeshua picks out one of these invalids. Remember, a multitude of invalids. Yeshua said to him, one of them, get up, take up your bed and walk. At once the man was healed. He took up his bed. He walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So out of this big multitude of sick people, Yeshua heals one man. Could he have healed everybody at that pool? Yep. He could have, but he chose to heal one man. He passed over the others who were there waiting for healing. And now I'm sure if if you were there at that pool and you were waiting for healing and you didn't get healed, you'd be like, that's not fair. What do you mean fair? What is fair? Do you deserve healing? Am I obligated somehow to heal? No. It would have been just as easy for Christ to have healed the whole great multitude as it was for Him to heal one man. But He didn't. Why? He chose not to. (laughs) Boy, we don't like God having choices, that's for sure. That's kind of rude of Him, right? So in the doctrine of predestination, God heals some people spiritually while not doing the same for others. The truth is, God could save everybody if He wanted to. Just as He could have healed everyone that was on earth when He walked on earth. But because He's obligated to no one, the fact that He heals or saves anyone is a gift of His gracious love. People have such a hard time with, you know, God, He's got to love everybody. Really? Why? Who makes that rule? Well, because the Bible says He's love. I know, but He does have other attributes, okay? Let's consider that. Now, Paul has already mentioned God's choice of the Thessalonians and the fact that God called them by salvation. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, He has chosen you. And our verse in chapter 5 is basically saying the same thing. God has destined us, not destined us for wrath. So why does Paul emphasize this idea so often? He likes to bother the Arminians, right? He's just aggravating the Arminians. No, he does it because it is a big deal, people, because it is the basis of our salvation. It means that God set his love on you and prepared you for a glorious future. Listen, before you were ever born, even let's go back further before the foundation of the earth. What does that tell you about the part you play in salvation? Nothing. He sent His own Son to pay the price required for your redemption from sin. Your salvation from God's wrath is secure, not because of anything you do or could have done, but because He chose you. I've heard people say, God chose us before the foundation of the world, before we were born, because if He'd have waited after we were born, He never would have chosen. (laughs) Can Can you agree with that? I mean... God didn't die, you know, these people would say, well, God looked in the future and he saw you would do this. Please. The only reason I do that is because God chose me, okay? That's not what predestination is about. All right? That God did not appoint believers for wrath is reminiscent of a similar statement in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. We talked about that regarding wrath. Now, the fury of God's wrath is described very graphically in 2 Thessalonians 1.10. 6 through 10, and we'll get to that at some point. 
And it's directed against those, he says, who obey not the gospel of our Lord Yeshua the Christ. So unbelievers, the wrath of God is poured out on them. But he says, we don't have to worry about it. Because we're, we're destined to obtain salvation through our Lord Yeshua the Christ. Now, I thought uh, J. Hampton Keithley had some interesting stuff to say on the language here that I thought was pretty good. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Yeshua the Christ. Heatley says, the Greek text is very descriptive here, calling our attention to a further fact that defines the reason for our deliverance. Paul used what grammarians call an adjectival particle, which describes a special fact, quality, or characteristic the noun or substantive it modifies, and it may even add a further defining fact. Here the substantive is our Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason for our deliverance is that He is the one who died for us. And that's exactly what Paul says next. Who died for us? He talks about the Lord and he says, He died for us. Who's the us here? All right, exactly right. The us here is the believers. Those who believe can say, because I believe, I know Christ died for me. All right, 1 John 5, 1. All right, the only reason we believe is because we have been born again. Romans 5, 8 says this, but God showed his love toward us. And the us here in the context is the believers at Rome. God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Who died for us expresses Yeshua's substitutionary, vicarious sacrifice on our part. The idea is that Yeshua died in our place as our substitute. If 1 Thessalonians was Paul's earliest writing, and I believe it was, then this is the first time in his writings that he states the specific means by which Christ procures our salvation. By mentioning it so briefly here in passing, you just have to assume that he dealt with them pretty thoroughly on this subject, and I'm sure he taught them the gospel, and this is the heart and soul of the gospel, okay? Luke summarizes Paul's preaching in the synagogue in Thessalonica this way. He says, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. So he's got to suffer, he's got to die, rise from the dead, and saying, this Yeshua, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ, the Messiah. The substitutionary death of Christ is the heart of the gospel. Now, why did Yeshua have to die for our salvation? I mean, God is love, right? And if you love somebody, why can't you just say, Anthony, look, I know you're a sinner. I like you. Come on, I'm just going to let you in. Come on, I'll let you in the back door, all right? Because, you know, we just sneak them in. If God is love, why did somebody have to die? Because it's not His only attribute. He is holy. He is just. And as a just God, He has to punish sin. So He did punish sin. He punished your sin in Christ. Oh, people, we could get the depth of this concept. I stand before God righteous because my sin is totally paid for. I died because of my sin in Christ, but I was raised from the dead in Christ also. And so my debt is paid. When I get to heaven, I don't have to kind of sheepishly with my head down, kind of wander in like, is it okay? No, I belong there, okay? I have as much right to be there as Christ does. 
Because my debt is fully paid in him. He died in my place. So God says, your debt is satisfied. My son died for you. He's holy. He's just. So the justice of God and the love of God met at Calvary. Put his son to death so he could freely love us and give us eternal life. Verse 10 says, Who died for us that whether we awake or sleep, we might live with him. (laughs) This is funny. You read a lot of disagreement here about what goes on in this verse because they're they're arguing about what does sleep here mean. All right? And the reason they're arguing, because it referred to death as in chapter 4, or does it refer to spiritual apathy as in the previous verses? So in this context, what do we say that sleep means? Cathudo is often used of moral indifference, spiritual insensitivity. So he says whether you're you know, spiritually insensitive or whether you're awake, you're going to live with him. Now, the Lordship people want to make the sleep here refer to death. In other words, it would be just like he said in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, whether you're awake or whether you died, you're going to live with him. And they say, well, that's what it means here. Well, it's funny. Why didn't he use that word that he used there in 13? Why does he use a totally different word here? That doesn't make any sense. If Paul's talking about death here, he should have used the same word. The immediate context, I think, favors spiritually insensitive. He just talked about that. While the word sleep here, Cathudo is used of death in one passage in the Gospels. Gregorio, the word used for being alert or awake, is never used metaphorically of physical life in the Greek Bible. So the use of Cathudo for physical death is rare. Normally it's used of spiritual sleep, and since Paul uses kemao for death of believers in chapter 4, I think it's highly unlikely that he meant that here. And this all leads me to conclude that Paul was speaking here of spiritual lethargy in verse 10, not physical death. So he's saying whether you are spiritually alert and expecting Christ's coming or you're spiritually asleep and insensitive to His coming, you're going to live with Him. You might die physically. You might go through judgment because of your disobedience, but you're going to live with Him. In other words, your salvation is based on Christ finish work and can't be nullified by our lack of work. It's not about what we're doing. And he says in verse 11 as he ends this section, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. Now encourage here, parakaleo. What's that word used for? Parakaleo. The comforter, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, all right? This includes the concept of giving aid, coming alongside to help, uh, enable the needy. The noun is used of the Holy Spirit, who is called a comforter. So he's telling him, listen, you guys in Thessalonica, encourage one another. And then he says, build one another up. Oikodomeo here is the it means to build up, to erect, to restore. It's used metaphorically of spiritual edification or restoration as might be needed in the life of these believers. So he's saying, listen, build each other up, encourage one another. Just like he did in 4.18, Paul calls the members of the Christian community to use, get this, the teaching on eschatology as a means of mutual support and edification. 
He says, these things are going to be encouraging for you to know. These will encourage one another. These will support one another. Do this. Share this with one another. It's kind of weird, but what he's saying is there's practical benefit in knowing biblical truth. Can you imagine that? (laughs) Practical benefit. There's a reason we should read our Bibles and try to learn about God. It affects our life. Paul wrote this passage on eschatology. Twice he tells them for encouragement, for support. So how about today? Are we encouraged and built up by the doctrines of eschatology? What do you think? I think we certainly should be if we have a correct eschatology. And see, if you want to know, I mean, it's kind of hard to encourage and build one another up with the fact that the day of the Lord's coming. All right, Putin's talking about nuclear war. That's going to be the day of the Lord, and we're all going to be blown off. Encourage one another with these words. That's not too encouraging. That's what's going on out there right now, okay? I mean, Putin mentions nuclear war, and everybody loses their mind. Oh, the day of the Lord's coming. It's the end of the world. It's the end of the age. You missed it by a little bit. So don't worry about any of that stuff, okay? We have a positive eschatology. God kept His Word. He judged Israel. He brought salvation in its full form to us. And we are in a position to live and walk with Him right now. We're not looking for something. We're not lacking anything. We don't hope for things other than the day we leave this body. Everything else is done. We're not looking for a day of judgment. We're now in His presence. And someday, we're going to drop this physical body, move into the heavenly, the spiritual realm with a new spiritual body. That's going to be pretty cool. And live with the Lord. So if anybody can encourage somebody else through eschatology, it's got to be someone who holds to a fulfilled view of eschatology and understands that the warnings and the judgment and the, the wrath to come came. It's over. It's not about us. So we're not looking for all that dread. You know? It's sad. I mean, the, the church today is so messed up on doctrine. You ever seen the commercials on TV about sending money to help get the Jews back in Israel? And I'm thinking, don't go. Don't go. You're just going to get killed when you get there. I mean, if they believe the Bible, the Jews, they want the Jews back in Israel, so what? The Great Tribulation can happen. They can all get slaughtered. I'm like, do you not understand this thing? But they make it sound like, oh, send your money and we'll help get some Jews back here. No. First of all, there is no Jews today, okay? Secondly, it's over, so don't worry about that stuff, okay? Listen, correct doctrine does so much for your practical life, okay? It really does. But it's not the easiest thing in the world. You need to learn to use some of the rules of hermeneutics when you read the Scripture. You've got to ask questions. Is this just to them? Is there a time reference here? Is there a locality reference here? Or is this to the saints at large? Because we've got those Christians today who say, this was all for them and it's nothing today. I disagree so strongly. We are the church. We are the body of Christ. And there's much of the Scriptures to us, to the saints. We are the saints. So it's written to us, if there's not a time stamp, if there's not, you know, when he tells the 
uh, Philippians, uh, you know, I beseech Yodia, I beseech Syntyche, be of the same mind. Oh, he's talking to two ladies in that church, okay? That doesn't have a lot other than he wants us to be unified. We can take those principles, but we just need to apply the work, people. We need to apply the work. And now, from verse 11 to the end of the chapter, 22 commandments for Christians. We'll get into that next time. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word, for the joy it brings our heart, Lord, to understand who we are in you, Father. It's, it's incomprehensible that you chose us before we ever existed, not because of anything we did, just you decided to love us. Thank you, Father. Oh, Lord, our life should be so poured out in gratitude to you for who you are and what you've done. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of salvation. Thank you for butchering your son that we might have life, for paying our debt in full. We love you, Lord. Amen. All right. Questions? Comments? Ms. Sharon. They were asleep, awake, wise, moronic, whichever. Um, but you see the other illustrations that you've given, whether you were asleep or awake, you still get in. And yet he said, uh, go away, I don't know you. Right. So how is that? Okay, yeah, that's, that's a good question, Sharon. I don't think when he tells them that, he's saying, you're not Christians, get away from me. I don't think that's the issue there. I think the issue is you're not prepared, judgment's going to fall on you. Right, right. No meaning, I don't have an intimate relationship. You, you weren't ready, you weren't prepared, you didn't follow. And that, again, in the Matthew 25 parable, we're dealing with Jerusalem and the destruction coming upon them. And again, you need, if you're not familiar, you need to read Josephus, The War of the Jews, and see what happened to those people that weren't ready and weren't watching. It was horrible. But I don't think the Lord's saying there that, nah, I don't, I don't know you, you're not believers. I don't think that's the issue there at all. My opinion. Um, from the past, isn't um, 10, weren't there 10 required to have a synagogue? Absolutely, yes. 10 men. Yeah, so. If you didn't have 10 men, you couldn't have a synagogue. So if they had nine men, where did they meet? The river. By the water. Yeah. That's where they met Lydia, the seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. All right, Gary Cole asked a question. He says, some in the chat room, including us, would like to know if you have updates about Gennady. Okay, let me say this first. Gennady's on Facebook, okay? All you have to do is request friendship from Gennady. He will friend you. You can keep up with he's, what he's doing constantly. He posts a lot of stuff. When he travels, he posts it on there. He puts prayer requests on there. But to say that, yes, I did hear from Gennady this morning. He asked for prayer for his brother. His brother's house, a bomb went off right outside his brother's house. His brother's house, he's in a five-story building. He's on the first floor. It blew out the windows. Nobody was hurt, or his daughter, I guess the daughter got injured by some shrapnel, but it wasn't serious. So he just asked us to pray for them. He said he can't go there right now. And I didn't totally understand this. It sounded like he might be having some medical tests done or something. I don't, I'm not privy to what's going on there. But So he said he can't get there for about 15 days. So he just asked us to be praying 
you know, for his brother and his family. So, yes, thank you for asking that question. Yes. Can you do that quickly now? Yes, we can. So, again, a <clears throat> um, friend him on Facebook, really. It's the best way to keep up, you know, with him. Because, um, like I said, he puts, puts everything on there. And that way, there is, Facebook's good for some things, okay? And there's always an English translation there so you can actually read it, okay? And know what's going on and what he's doing. And I think you'll be encouraged as he has pictures of him with the soldiers, praying with the soldiers, and him with the people handing out booklets and handing out the bread. It's, you know, it's just much different, I think, when you see it and you see him there ministering. It just gives you a more of a heart, I think, to just pray for him. So let's just pray for Gennady right now and for their ministry, for his brother. Father, I thank you for your servant. Gennady, Lord, I thank you for his incredible love for you, for his willingness to serve, his willingness to sacrifice for you, Lord. And we pray for his brother, Lord, and we pray for all those, Father, that are in the midst of a war zone right now, just, you know, fearful lives, families being torn apart. Father, may they turn to you. May they look to you for guidance and strength to help them through this very difficult time. We pray, Father, you just continue to use Gennady in a mighty way to encourage these people. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Amen. Thanks, Gary. Someone asked, was your audience relevance breakdown of verse 5 be considered as rightly dividing the word of truth? for we to understand what is relevant to them and us today. Well, yeah, I would think that would be part of rightly dividing the word of truth. We have to understand, again, there's a lot you have to... I don't want to make this sound like it's difficult, because I think you could pick up the Bible and you can read it and know Christ died for your sins and you can trust Him, okay? But there's so much more. You can get so much deeper. But you have to understand culture. You know, we read about the virgins and we're like, what are they doing waiting for a bridegroom? What's this all about? You know, when you understand the culture, it's pretty cool what actually goes on at a wedding for them. It's not like us. It's not like an hour ceremony. and You go eat something, then you go home. No, it was weak. OK, they had a party. They lived it up. All right. It was a big deal. So it's very different. So we got to understand culture. We got to understand language because sometimes, you know, sometimes the Greek, it, it just it's translated. So it's fine. Other times. You just got to break it down. That's why I say use different translations. So we got to break down these barriers. And when we do, we get, you know, we get more excitement out of the Word of God. We see what's really going on, and it's just a good thing. But if you're reading verses and applying them to yourself that don't apply to you, you know, it's, that's not for you. You're, you're, you know, you're, I'm claiming this promise from God. Well, it's not your promise. Somebody else's promise, Okay. Can you think of a verse that's claimed by so many people that's so far out of context? Jeremiah 29. I know the plans I have for you. He's talking to the exiles in Babylon. I'm going to bring you back, you exile. It's not to you. Well, God does have good plans for me. Okay, He does if you're a Christian. But it's not to bring you out of exile in Babylon. <laughs> I guarantee you that. So context is very important. Okay, here we go. From Norm. <laughs> Norm got a phone. Yahweh indeed makes life real. 
We really do make choices, and those choices really do have consequences. Amen. However, Yahweh has ordained those choices and consequences into His incomprehensible plan. Only God can do this. Let us fall on our knees and worship Him as Job did. Amen, Norm. That's so true. You know, people think, you know, okay, if if God's sovereign and we're robots. No, I I know I'm not a robot. I got up today and I made a bunch of choices. I'm going to do this. Now, I really wanted to put on a different jacket. But this one came out of the closet and jumped on me. So I figured it must be God. No, come on, that's, that's ridiculous. We make choices, we do things. All right, but again, this is how immense our God is. All those choices are working together, okay? Okay, someone says, according to the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible, John was written in the 90s of the first century. Wasn't the sheep gate pool destroyed in 8070? Thanks, Jerry. Yes, Jerry. It was. Okay, I love the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible. It is very good. Okay, but they screwed up here. Okay, and they're just going with the flow here. That's the common view. It was written in the 90s. Yes, if it's written in the 90s, the greatest event that happened to them was the destruction of their temple, but they don't even mention it. Isn't that fascinating? Our temple was destroyed. You know, no more offerings, no more sacrifice. We don't even talk about that. And again, the evidence, the external evidence and internal evidence is very strong. All the Bible was written prior to AD 70. Okay? Thanks, Jerry. Thank you for another thought-provoking message. It challenged me to dig deeper to be a Berean. Amen. Not everything is clear, but I thank you for promoting me and continued study. I'm so grateful for the ministry of BBC. Well, thank you. We, we appreciate that. Listen, let me just say, I know everybody is not, you know, Bob and I talked about this, I think, last week. Everybody's not in the same place spiritually. Everybody's not a digger. Everybody's not going to spend hours and hours digging into the Greek, looking into the culture. I understand that, okay? But, you know, you have people who have done that that you could listen to, or, but you're all still responsible to do some research on your own. You know, to not just believe everything you hear, you have to investigate for yourself. You know, and you have the Holy Spirit, and He's going to lead and guide, you know. So, it's just nobody has the right to just say, I just, whatever. Have a reason for what you believe, okay? It's important. From Mark in Texas, what are good guiding principles for determining whether strict audience relevance applies or we can apply it to us today? You know, that's a good question. Um, And again, I think we have to look at it and say, is this time sensitive? Is what he's telling them time sensitive? You know, soon, quickly, or shortly, they're looking for a certain event. Then we have to say, okay, that's not for us. But if it's, to me, if it's written to the saints, and it's not particular to a certain church, then it's to us. I'm a saint. The church is the body of Christ. These are commands given to the church. All right? Be controlled by the Spirit. That's for the church. We're all to be there. All right? So I think that's the guiding factor. And like I said, it's, it's not always that simple. Sometimes it takes a little effort. So dig into it. So thank you, Mark. Appreciate that. He did. <laughs> oh, here's a... Gary, uh, this question was answered just a second ago. It says, were the other virgins that ran up, maybe you asked this before I answered it, ran, not saved. No, I think all the virgins were saved. They were all waiting. 
for the bridegroom. They just weren't prepared. Okay? They had oil. They were, they were waiting. They all had the same things. They're all waiting. One, wasn't, one group wasn't prepared for a long delay. Okay? Does the Holy Spirit still have a role in the church today? If so, what is it? Yes, I think the Holy Spirit has an abundant role in the church today. Again, we're to be controlled by the Spirit. Now, that sounds nice, but how do we do that? How are we controlled by the Spirit? I think Paul tells us, okay? Because in Colossians, he says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, and then the following results, singing to one another in hymns, songs, spirituals, that's the same result of being filled with the Spirit. So letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly, we spend time in the Word of God. Listen, if you're not taking the Word of God in, how is the Spirit going to control you? I mean, these, peer, these people, I know they get all these emotions and, you know, upset stomachs and they get these feelings, but the, the Bible, God uses the Word of God and He can direct us. And when we're doing something we shouldn't, He brings Scripture to our mind if we know it and don't go that direction. Or, hey, here's what the Word of God says, do this. But we have to take in the Word of God. It's vital. Look at Colossians, look at Ephesians, look at those parallel passages. I think that tells us. So, yeah, I mean, people think, you know, the Lord came, the Holy Spirit's not. We, we have the whole Trinity, people. Available to us 24-7. All of them, okay? It's not one, it's not the other, and they're not jealous of one another, okay? I'm starting your series on the Feast of the Lord. Is there anything you would change in that series? Are your thoughts any different? There's always something I would change. <laughs> and some guys put all the stuff together in a book form, and I, I still have published because I've still got certain things that I haven't worked out yet, but I, in my mind I'm like... That's probably never, I'm never going to be done with that, okay? Because that is so deep, and it just, every time I go over those things, I was just going over some stuff last week, because uh, one of the uh, pastor from uh, Arkansas, young pastors in Arkansas, contacted me, and he says, can you do a podcast with me on the Feast of the Lord? I'm like, sure, I'd love to do that, because um, it's a thrilling, a thrilling subject. But I don't think there's anything radical, if that's what you're asking. I haven't changed my mind on anything or you know, anything radical, but I, all through it, I've changed my mind on things. I've seen things, and I'm like, oh, I said this. I was an idiot. I was a moron, okay? <laughs> Got to move on, all right? And you learn and you grow, so, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an evolution, people. I'm, I'm learning, so. But it's up to them to figure out where you were. That's right. You got to figure out where I was wrong. <laughs> That's where you'd be a Brian. Because of the sovereignty of God, she would only pray for believers. Um, no. There's people who are going to be believers, and you should be praying for them, okay? Pray that God would do His work in their hearts. I mean, here's the thing. If God wasn't sovereign, there'd be no purpose to pray for unbelievers. What can God do about it? And I've heard an evangelist say that. Don't pray for these people. He was talking about people that come to the altar. Don't pray for these people. God can do nothing now. It's up to them. And I thought, whoa, sad. They got to do it themselves. No. It's always up to God. So yes, we, we always should be praying, you know, for unbelievers. I pray that God would open their eyes. He would give them grace. He would impart with them the Holy Spirit. Gennady, I hear you in the chat room. Good to hear from you, brother. Yeah, you can answer their questions better than I can. Uh, I encourage them all to um, be your friend on Facebook, and that way you can communicate with them. So... You can just uh, tell them anything they need to know there, Gennady. Appreciate your ministry, brother. Hang in there. This war is not going to last too much longer, I don't think. So hang on and uh, 